0: excellent excellent Well before we get to today's message I'd like to do just a, a little summary a uh, brief of what we covered last week and we talked about decolonization of our lives and how it is completely interconnected. In the ways that we have true relationship with indigenous beings, people, earth, animals, all living and sacred beings that actually took care of our continent and the south below us continent, you know, South America, and took care of all of that on a regular ceremonial basis. Because it wasn't seen as separate. It was interconnected in our lives. But then colonization was a cataclysmic event that propelled us into environmental disaster. And we even have seen from scientific evidence now, the beginning in 1610, it took a drastic change. We see a lot of, have you seen the 1619 16, Project and how that was the beginning of the full-fledged slavery market? Not to take away from that at all, but we had already been doing slavery since the original conquistadors came into Caribbean and Latin American, Florida, and the Native population did not serve that insatiable need for slavery it did not cover the damage that the colonial powers wanted to help take over this new world and we know today that it was because of that destruction that was started that we tipped the earth towards an imbalance that has not been recovered since So it's not just the genocide of human beings and literally thousands of species that colonization provided. It was the complete annihilation of whole language groups and culture and biodiversity. So those that weren't here last week, that was the bummer of a message we got. (laughs) That was the bummer side. But today... And hopefully last week, it piqued some ideas within your own hearts and within your own minds that we could actually look at this as a process that is ongoing. And as these songs remind us, this is for our future, folks. We're in dire, dire situation. And I forgot to mention last week, I was at an environmental conference at the Highlands, uh, North Carolina, has anyone been to the mountain retreat center there? Yes. Isn't it beautiful? I felt like I was in heaven because the clouds and the smoky mountains come and settle below the mountains. And if you walk out that ledge, you'll walk right onto the clouds. I didn't try that because <laughs> it's like a thousand foot drop, but it feels like that. And we had three environmental scientists retired. I've never seen such sad people. I have never been with someone with that little of hope about something that they are so committed to. They cried. Because what they see happening is so much even more dire than what we see on the news. It's so much worse. And so this decolonization has stripped us, not just of ourselves, but the very earth on which we live and breathe and have our being. So this week, let's talk about some vision to get us out of this puddle. Get us out of this a little bit. And if anything, whether the science backs it up or not, I'm not giving up. I'm not giving up. And one of the reasons is sitting right here and right here and right here. I've got three of my children here. And if we don't do what we can, we're failing them. And it's not too late. If you're sitting here today, it's not too late to do something. And that's what we're going to talk about today. What can we do to begin this decolonizing of our own selves and to assist those who are actually doing the work? My own vision includes our indigenous people. And at this same conference, we had a group of people from the Muskogee Eco-Village. And has anyone heard of this before? Anyone? It is rooted in decolonization. The creeks were moved on the Trail of Tears to Oklahoma in the early 1800s, just like a lot of tribes were. But there was, a lot, there was a lot that stayed there but moved farther down into Florida and hid out in the swamps and a part of this great Muskogee confederation of tribes. And a vision amongst Oklahoma creeks, and I'm not creek, and I'm speaking from what they have told me because that's important too. I'm not just talking about an abstract article that I read. These are living, real, indigenous people that have begun the decolonizing of themselves. They knew in order for that to happen in a real, living, day-to-day way, they would have to leave where they were planted here in Oklahoma to go back. And not only did they go back to the original homelands, they actually found an ancient village as well as ceremonial grounds that they could purchase to reclaim. They raised the funds and have started a totally organic farm and reconstructing the ecology of that area based on indigenous methods. And they didn't stop just with gardening. They actually included, have any of you heard of sturgeon, the fish? Well, they used to be native in the southeast lakes, which I didn't realize. I thought they were more northern. And then I heard we even have some in Oklahoma. That They're a very popular northern fish. But they found a species of sturgeon that matches the ancient sturgeon that were in the southeast, and they have brought them back for the first time since colonization. There are sturgeon now in Alabama. So the Muskoka eco-village and Marcus Briggs Cloud has started this decolonizing process by getting away from the toxic energy of political institutions, away from the more mainstream tribal identities that people have formed and gone back to be more traditional, taking off those layers of westernization and so Marcus and his group, they dance traditionally. They eat traditionally as much as possible. When they travel, that's hard. And so, very much so. And, and they do as much of their lifestyle and this 500-acre parcel, as much turn over to the original way as much as they can. But it's an ongoing process. It's been going on, I think, for five years now. The vision has been longer. But this is a vision amongst Oklahoma tribes. I say tribes, I mean people within the tribe, not necessarily tribal governments. And there's a big difference. It's like saying I'm American and people think of Donald Trump. There's a separation here. I want to make that clear. I'm not talking about tribal governments, I'm talking about people that happen to be within tribes, because that's a big difference. And I don't know of any tribes that are currently going back in that sort of way. And once they do, it'll be a wonderful thing. So, um, and another example is right here, close to us in Ocmulgee, the Muskokie uh, Food Cooperative. I know that was active, and I know that it was up and going really well. I haven't talked to them recently, but that's another example um, of indigenous decolonization that we can support, that we can actually have a hand in, and now there's children being born at the Muskogee eco-village in Alabama. There's children that are growing up in this atmosphere and speaking the language on a continual basis. Everything is immersion for them, even the families that are learning, the ones that are older. They're relearning these things that are ingrained in the DNA. The words match the environment. When I was in the Arctic, there were so many words for just snow. If I say it's snowing, that's one word we use. And in Oklahoma, we don't really need a lot more because we don't get that much snow. Whereas in the Arctic, by the end of the winter, we're driving snowmobiles over everyone's houses. It's that much snow. And so the words for snow, and please don't lose me on this linguistic thing, because linguistic locality is the key to our language and our our connection to the environment. And the reason I say this is because up in the Arctic, there is a literal word for snow that is on top of other snow that's upon a layer of ice that's upon some snow, but you can't go through it in your snowmobile, but it's thick enough snow that you can walk on, etc., etc. And they have one word for it. And so, this connection to the environment is now getting people killed. Because in the Arctic, the ice and snow is melting so fast that when the hunters go out upon snow that has been spread around the villages, the snow is safe. It's this kind of snow. So they drive their snowmobiles on it just looking for food to feed their families and they're falling through the ice. Because it's a different type of snow now. What may look like what they have hunted on for thousands of years is in actuality something entirely different. You've seen the news reports about the Arctic, I'm sure. Sure. The thinning ice is causing polar, causing polar bears to drown. And, but the people up there depend on the ice to bring in the food, the seals and the walruses. If you're vegan, I'm sorry, but this is their vegan meal. This is all they have. This is, this is literally what they live on. And whenever there's drops in the populations, there's starvation and people die today we have information channels that help prevent some of that but it is destroying complete ways of life that have gone on for thousands of years their villages predate way predate colonization from the western european nations and in siberia you know from the russians and it predates all of that some villages are 10,000 years old and so the artifacts they dig up showed this balance And they showed where there's times of hunger and where there's not. And it's continuing more and more and more with every year. So that's another example of how we can actually get involved. There's organizations that are actually moving villages now away from the coast. So they're having to uproot their villages that have literally been built upon their ancestors for thousands and thousands of years. And now they're having to move because the ice used to shelter the village from the storms and it doesn't anymore. Now the ice is fully retreated and it's taking homes into the ocean. Decolonization is not just a philosophical idea or a metaphor. It's actual life. It's actual life. And supporting these organizations will only bring us more connected, not just to them, but to each other and everyone else around us. Because we believe in the seven principles. We believe that each being is divine. I mean human, sorry. I misquoted that principle. It means that all of us are interconnected. Every single one of us. What may seem like someone way on the other side of the world You talk to them for a while and there's connections that we have. They have family. They may have neighbors. And we're not so different from each other. Another way to help is by the refugee border crisis. The majority of those people are refugees. And it makes me really upset watching the news because they label them as immigrants and migrants. Most of these are refugees because of our colonialization tactics in Central America. For centuries, we've been destroying their countries and watching it happen with our own government, and now we're reaping what we have sown. We have destabilized Central America to the point that most of the indigenous people in these countries are unsafe. They're not the conquistadors. These are the poor. These are the peasants. And these people's complete communities have been wiped out by our country. Our country. And the majority of these refugees that are coming are indigenous people who even speak their indigenous languages. This isn't a political sermon. This is a humanitarian sermon you want to change the world, we could start just by addressing the refugee crisis. And it doesn't stop there. We've got pipelines that are going through the most poor and native communities right now in Louisiana. They are literally camped out blocking these pipelines that goes directly through native communities and black communities. Not through the suburbs. Not through you know, closed-gate communities. We're talking about the most marginalized of the marginalized in that area. There's action that can be taken there. There's the Hawaii in Mauna Kea protest. Does anyone want to go to Hawaii with me to protest? (laughs) Let's start a trip. (laughs) You don't want to go to Hawaii? Oh, Um, connecting with Native American legal funds. There's actually a fund that actually for tribal people that get into lawsuits, like for, for practicing religion or wearing religious symbols. You know, like graduates get to wear crosses around their necks as big as they want, but someone can't wear an eagle feather on their mortar cap. Things like that. We can support those to help decolonize us our country our way of thinking i've got a long list and i i i could go on more of course in my own head it's a lot Uh, one quick one before because i want to open it up i want to open it up to everybody because i know after last week we had some people you know that really have some great ideas that would like to share and so another one is, is supporting. There, there is, an, and I, I have a strong bias with this, but there's actually a resurgence in indigenous tattooing. I know some of you really like that, and and some of you go, "Oh no, no, I'm not going to approach it." But it is an important part of tribal culture. It's 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 rites of passage is what's happening, and. The Maori have been doing it and the Hawaiians and Samoans and even in the Arctic now when when Liam was born up in Alaska, we had elders in the village with full facial tattoos, but they were the last generation and they were in their nineties. And I got to visit them in nursing homes and in the homes, and they had been shamed all of their lives by missionaries, by the church telling them that because they had those tattoos there was very little chance of them even getting into heaven imagine that so guess what the next generation did not have tattoos but there is now this resurgence in Alaska that was started by one of our friends getting the facial tattoos for young women when they reach puberty and it's growing in strength but that's an important part we even have a cherokee ceremonial leader in telequa that now does traditional tattooing with the tamping sticks has anyone ever seen that in in a lot of the tribal cultures and in polynesia they use tapping sticks to do the tattoo marks it takes 10 times longer than a machine But that's a part of the process. In our beliefs, nothing can be completely lived out in life unless there is some pain that goes with it, just like childbirth. And it's the same sort of process. And this isn't a sermon about the sacred or spirituality wholeness of tattooing. It's saying that that is an important part of tribal culture. And those are the things that we can begin even reframing in our own minds. Instead of seeing someone with tattoos like a Maori with full face, instead of seeing that as repulsive, "That's, that's a beautiful thing. They feel decolonized enough that they can actually do something that marks them for life in front of everyone else. It is a step out of the colonization, just one bit. And so the idea is the more that we take these these colonized ideas and ways of thinking away and listen more to the indigenous heartbeat that's around us and within us, then we can begin this process not just individually, but as communities, as a mindset, as a worldview. We can see through the filter of openness and being of aid, having empathy, and wanting to reach out and help change. So, let's open this up. Um, we've got, I know some ideas, and I really want to get to that. Can I get a microphone and do like Phil Donahue? Does that, that's probably too old for some people. <laughs> I don't know, who's a new one today? Who does this? Is it even a thing? Maybe not. I looked, I looked to the young crowd. <laughs> What's hip?
1: Well, I learned a couple of years ago about a land trust that is run by the Ohlone women uh, who the Ohlone tribes settled the San Francisco Bay Area, about 4,000, 5,000, 6,000 years ago. And their the defining event for them was around 2012 when a developer was going to put up a building on what had been their ceremonial ground and their burial ground. And a group of women got together and said... We need to do something because they lost their, they're not a recognized tribe. So they didn't have any legal standing to stop the development. But they said, we need to buy up some of our ancestral lands and protect it and put in cellar- ceremonial uh, centers and places where we can teach our culture and our language and maybe find a burial ground for our ancestors' bones. And so they started the Segoria Te Land Trust. And then they said, well, how are we going to finance this? And then they came up with the idea of a sha'umi tax or gift tax. And they invite everyone who is living or has a business in the San Francisco Bay Area on land that was, because all of it was Ola- Ohlone land, that they pay in voluntarily a tax, an annual tax. And there's actually a website you can go to, and if you live there, they say, well, do you rent? Do you own? Do you have a business? If you own, how many bedrooms do you have? The tax is anywhere from $65 to $500 a year. I went in and put in my three-bedroom three house just to see what it would be, it would be $400 a year. But if that's an acknowledgement of the history of the land, and it's an acknowledgement that that land was taken, and it's a way to decolonize. And so I was asking Gary last week, I said, Are any of the Muskogee or the Cherokee or the Pawnee doing this? Because my house sits on former Muskogee land. This church sits on Muskogee land. But my research shows that the folks in the San Francisco Bay Area are the only ones doing it right now. Hopefully, this will spread to other tribes.
0: It's an excellent idea. I had never heard of this before. And it's a way to actually be a part of something that you're not obligated. You're not, you know, it, it's, it's not like a, a a tax for everyone. It's voluntary. And so those, it's, it's, it reminds me of, how many of you have heard of people taking out a certain percentage of their income tax? Okay, this part goes to war, so I'm not gonna pay for that. I mean, they get in trouble eventually. I'm not saying to do it. I, because I had a friend that did it. And he, he, he did it for about 10, 12 years. But now he's living on nothing. So it catches up. But it's similar to that idea. Like putting your money where your conscience is. It's not enough to just not take plastic bags at grocery stores. It's not enough. But this is something that, that not only helps start that decolonization process, but it's changing lives. These women taking this this role in a society, and most of the California tribal descendants aren't enrolled in an organized tribe. So many of them were not included because of the genocide. I mean, it was California was one of the bloodiest of the states, um, and so these women have survived. And to me, that's that's an incredible example. Anyone else have ideas like to share? Yes, yes.
2: I despise the concept of making America great again. But I'm troubled with the concept about making the world old again. Now, we got the past, present, and future. I'm more focused on the future. We learn from the past, we act in the present, we build our future. As a child, I grew up in Virginia. I went to school. I learned Virginia history. I went to all the historical sites. I'm very familiar with that. I've lived it. I experienced it. And I'm enjoying reading it in the news right now. My my wife made an interesting comment to me about immigrants this morning and how these immigrants are self-selecting to come to this country. That's what my ancestors did. They self-selected to colonize this world. My wife says, I suspect that's all of our families. That's even my family out in Oklahoma. They came out here and they rented land from the Indians before statehood. And that's how we got started out here. I understand what we're talking about with decolonization. There's something to be learned from there. But one of the things that I I learned is, what caused the Europeans to colonize the world? They were hungry. Doesn't that sound like the people in South America? They came over and found this thing called a potato, and they were less hungry for a period of time until there was a disease. I'm really focused on the future. I like learning from the past, but one of the things I've been thinking a lot about right now is, you know, all men are created equal, and the thing I've kind of learned since the sermon last week and through some realization is when does somebody become equal? It's when they step up and ask to be equal, whether it's a man or a woman, a different race. To me, equality is when you ask for it. And so I support the refugees who are coming this direction because they are self-selecting. I'm a little tr- troubled with the decolonization.
0: Yeah. Well, we have one thing we share, and that's the hope for the future. Um, and this was opened up. If anyone has ideas to decolonize, not to be in dialogue with the sermon, because that can happen later, but in, to add to the decolonization, yes.
2: Hi, I'm Josh Mize. I've been here a couple times, but I actually have a direct ask. Um, I think this is a really important topic, and uh, I noticed that uh, some of the previous uh, sermons have had uh, recordings that you could click play on.
0: I would really appreciate it if this one and the previous one, if there is a recording, if we put it online, and a transcript with links to Mm -hmm. the various resources that you've identified when you were researching, uh, because I would very much like to read more about it and, and be able to link other people to it. I beat you to the punch I created a Facebook page Hopefully you're on Facebook No, see, ah, these younger people You all get us onto Facebook and then you leave us (laughs) That's what I feel like But anyway, but I will, there's a link I, I created a page just to put articles And it's called Decolonization Today Sounds like a magazine, but it's the only thing I can think of Um, Just in the moment and so it's on Facebook, but I will also prepare the links and then I'll try to put them on I know they have podcast and so um, I'll try to add it somehow. I'll try. I'll do every everything I can Was there someone else? Yes, okay I'll play it. You want the mic still I for those that need it No, it's ready
3: Okay, my my mother-in-law is Ottawa Indian and the tribe was small enough and wealthy enough that even today my granddaughters have CDIB cards. The frustration has been that the last full blood Ottawa was in the 1980s and because of assimilation and trying to get the Native Americans to be more white, it's been very frustrating to get my son who was not introduced to the Ottawa culture to understand that it's important for my granddaughters to know it. Even though I have no Indian blood, it's from the paternal side. And it would be really nice. And it's very frustrating because there's so little literature on this Canadian tribe. And what people don't understand is the Ottawa's were moved into northern Oklahoma Kansas. And the Ottawa tribe gave land to the state of Kansas on the condition that Ottawa University be free to all CDIB cardholders. But it's the, the amount of information out there on some of these smaller tribes and the tribes that are disappearing is almost nil. Right. And that's what, it's very frustrating to try to get some of that back.
0: And, and I wanna encourage, I don't need this, I guess. Um, you know, for those that, that do come from a tribe, I mean, to research, it, talk to elders and talk to traditional people, the ones that are doing the ceremonies. The ones that, I mean, I, and, and, and that's the unfortunate thing. A lot of them have already passed on, and that's so sad. But if it's possible to resurrect the Hebrew language after World War II, and now all of Israel speaks it, it's possible to regain some of these things. Some tribes have gone back and looked at linguistic records and actually brought the language back alive. So it is possible, and you know to help reclaim some of these things so um, so uh, anyone else? yes
4: This is kind of along the line of what you just were speaking about. We have a grandson that graduated from university and Miami of Ohio, and the featured speaker that we attended uh, when we attended his graduation ceremony surprised me greatly by talking a lot about Oklahoma. Uh, He is a faculty member, and he has been known nationwide for working with the Miami tribe in the state of Ohio to resurrect their language and speak and that by the way is happening to the Miami tribe here in Oklahoma they are developing speakers who speak that language young people who speak that language so that it does not die out and that has been such a successful program that the Cherokees are doing the same here now and uh, it was just uh, very exciting to hear that this kind of thing is happening, and especially that it's happening right here in Oklahoma. Thank you
0: Thank you so much to everyone who shared, and this means a lot, and I will definitely get um, links to things as well as uh, resource information about just just simple down to earth nonprofits that, that are out there and um not a part of structures or anything. Uh, they're more independent and ceremonial. And so I will get those up. And so to bring us back together, um this process is it's it's uh like any growth process. Sometimes it's uncomfortable and sometimes we may be on different pages but just recognize that each of us are on a different journey and we're in different stages of even decolonization. I mean, um, just going against any norm is a decolonizing effort, like the plastic bags and taking cloth bags. That's, that's an effort to help regain what, um, what we've lost you know, in this climate. So, um, we can rise up together and come into this existence and decolonizing ourselves in relationship with all that's around us. And so now, let's move right into taking up our offering, and today it goes again to Global Gardens, um, our general.